everyone. Welcome to the True Path Podcast. I'm so glad you're joining us today. So today we're going to begin a study in a new book, the book of 2 Peter. I felt after finishing our study in 1 Peter a few weeks ago that we really shouldn't deviate without also studying Peter's second letter. I feel pretty strongly that this letter is a follow-up to his first letter. The book of 1 Peter dealt with how to handle persecution from outside the church, and 2 Peter deals with how to handle false teachers and evildoers inside the church. So I think this is a necessary and very timely study. So today we'll be studying 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1-9. through 9. So what if you knew that your life on this earth was coming to a close? What if you knew that you didn't have much longer to live? And suppose, knowing you didn't have much longer to live, you decided to sit down and write a letter to your loved ones, your family and friends. What do you think you would say in that letter? What would you want them to know? What guidance, warnings, or words of wisdom would you want to impart to them? This is my impression of Second Peter. History tells us that Peter was martyred by the Roman Emperor Nero, and Nero's reign ended around 68 AD. And the book of Second Peter was written around 65 to 68 AD. Now, Peter didn't know for a fact the precise time of his demise, but in chapter 1, verses 13 through 15, Peter says, I think it's right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body, because I know that I will soon put it aside, as our Lord Jesus has made clear to me. So if we were in a situation like this, as Peter was, Where do you think your focus would be in that moment? Well, I think that our focus would probably be on what was truly important in life, the things that were the most valuable. I think we'd be focused on the things that were worth hanging on to and the things that probably should be put away. And so Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, sits down to write a letter at the end of his life about what is really important, about what we should be focusing on. So let's read 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1-9 through 9 in the CSB. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith equal to ours through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. By these, he has given us very great and precious promises so that through them you may share in the divine nature, escaping the corruption that is in the world because of evil desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with goodness, goodness with knowledge, Knowledge with self-control, self-control with endurance, endurance with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being useless or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The person who lacks these things is blind and short-sighted and has forgotten the cleansing from his past sins. So in verse 1, Peter describes himself as a servant and and an apostle of Jesus Christ. 
Now, this is important because there were others who were also writing things about the church and Christianity at this time, and not all the writings were authentic. So Peter wants to make it clear to his recipients that he was personally chosen by Jesus himself to be one of his apostles, and he was given the task to preach and teach about Jesus to others. Therefore, his words are authentic and authoritative, and they should be heeded. Yet he also refers to himself as a servant of Jesus, clearly pointing to the fact that spiritual authority should never give way to pride. No matter what a person standing in the church, we are all, as Christians, servants of Jesus. Jesus even says about himself in Matthew 20, 28, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. It says in verse 2, the letter is written to those who have received a faith equal to ours through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Peter is addressing fellow Christians. Most scholars believe that this letter is written to the same people as 1 Peter, the exiled Christians living abroad in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And notice in verse 2, it also says that Jesus is both God and Savior. Now, this is important because there were many false teachers then, and there are false teachers now, who consider Christ to be an, historic, to be an important historical figure, a great teacher, a great philosopher, even a miracle worker, but not God. Yet this is the most significant tenet of the Christian faith. Jesus is God. There can be no true belief in God without belief in Jesus. You can't separate them. John 14, 6, Jesus even says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Peter also says that he writes to those who have received a faith equal to ours. Our Christianity is a faith that we have received. We don't have to summon up enough faith on our own to believe in Christ. Christ himself gives us the faith. And the faith he gives us is perfect and complete. That's how the Christians of Central Baptist Church in Lviv, Ukraine, can continue to serve and praise God in the middle of a brutal war with Russia. And persecuted Christians in China can continue worshiping Jesus, knowing it might land them in prison. Now, we may look at people like this and say, wow, they must have some kind of special inner strength of their own or some kind of special ability to be so faithful. But I read a quote from Chinese pastor Gao Miyun, and he says, The Christian's hope lies in this. We are not stronger or purer than others. Instead, rather than believing in ourselves, we believe in Jesus, who upholds us when we fall, who comforts us when we give up, who strengthens us when our strength is drained, who loves us when we are in pain, who does not give up, even when we are hopeless about ourselves. I think that's encouraging because it's nothing special in them that prompts such faithfulness. They're allowing the faith that they receive from Christ to shine through them. And if we have accepted Jesus as the Savior and Lord of our lives, then we too have that same faith. Peter states that plainly in verse 1, we have received a faith equal to theirs. Now, that's quite an incredible statement. I mean, that we have been given the same faith as the great Apostle Peter, as the Apostle James, as John, as even Paul. 
And again, Peter is refuting the false teachers who said that true wisdom and faith was really only available to a select few. But no, Peter says, this faith given by Christ is given to anyone who believes and confesses Jesus as Lord. Now, this is both a privilege and a challenge because we can look at the great saints of the New Testament and say, wow, I could never measure up to that kind of faithfulness. So why should I even try? And so they use that as an excuse to give up. Or we can choose to see the blessing of it. How special God must consider us to be and be motivated to use the great faith that was instilled in us the moment we became saved to fulfill his calling in our lives. And as I have said before, the more we use our faith, the stronger we become. Now in verse 3, it says, His divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. So Jesus' divine power has given us all we need for our spiritual lives, which began with salvation, and godliness, our growth in godly wisdom and faith. So we've been given all the tools we need to live lives that are pleasing to our Heavenly Father. But what are these tools and how do we go about accessing them? Well, we access them, as verse 3 tells us, through the knowledge of Jesus. If you want to know how to live a life that is full and meaningful, then get to know the one who gave you life. Peter's intent is to make clear the fact that we should make knowing the Lord a priority in our lives. And growing in knowledge is something that everyone can do, not just those who seem super spiritual. And growing in godly knowledge isn't just for the purpose of having a lot of knowledge, but it's for the purpose of growing in godliness, growing to look more like Jesus every day. Our relationship with the Lord should grow in direct proportion to our knowledge of the Lord, meaning the more we know, the more we should grow. Because in chapter 2, we're going to encounter those who had knowledge of Jesus, but it ended there. It never led to a relationship with Jesus. But in Christ, we have all we need. Nothing needs to be added to our faith. There is no special spiritual revelation or special knowledge or special wisdom that comes from someone else that needs to be added to our faith. God's word needs no supplement. And the best antidote to heretical teaching is having knowledge of the truth. And in verse 4, it goes on to say, By these he has given us very great and precious promises, so that through them you may share in the divine nature, escaping the corruption that is in the world because of evil desire. So it says, by these or through these, meaning through his glory and goodness, he has given us great and precious promises. But what promises? Well, 2 Corinthians 6.18 says, And I will be a father to you, and you will be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. And Romans 8.17 says, If we are children, then we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Out of his goodness and glory, he has promised to make us a part of his family and heirs to his kingdom with all the blessings that that entails. As his child, we are given an inheritance that will never spoil or fade from 1 Peter 1, 3, and 4. 
We are promised his continual presence in our lives, bringing comfort and guidance. When we become his children, he begins to work in our lives in supernatural ways. That's how we participate in the divine nature. Now, the fact that we share in the divine nature, that doesn't mean that we become divine, that we become gods, but we are able, through Jesus' power working through us, and because of his promises to us, we're able to resist the devil and stand strong in the faith. We can't do this on our own power. It takes divine power. When we share in the divine nature, we don't become gods, but we become more like Jesus. We take on the characteristics that he embodied. When we pattern our lives after his, we become holy as he is holy in 1 Peter 1.16 and conform to his image in Romans 8.29. And the result of this inner transformation is an outward transformation. We escape the corruption that is in the world because of evil desire. We can escape the horrible consequences that a corrupt and evil world is destined for because we don't have those same evil desires anymore. Now, the world will tell you that your heart will never lead you astray, that if you follow your desires, then you will always be happy. But God's word says here that sometimes our desires are evil and they can corrupt us. So by participating in the divine nature, We give the Lord room in our lives to change our desires. Jesus can and will do that if we will let him. And in verses 5 through 7, it goes on to say, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with goodness, goodness with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with endurance, endurance with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. So for this reason, it says, so because we have been given such wonderful promises from God, we are able to share in his divine nature. And because of that, these are the characteristics that we should be striving for. Goodness, knowledge, self-control, endurance, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. This is what a person who shares in the divine nature of Jesus should look like. But notice it all begins with faith. I mean, that's the root from which all these other characteristics grow. And it says we are to make every effort to add these to our lives, meaning it's going to take work and effort to develop these attributes. Now, you might ask, well, wait a minute, since I share in the divine nature, since Jesus' spirit lives within me, don't I already have these characteristics? I mean, if we've been given all we need for life and godliness, then why do we need to work, make every effort to add these characteristics to our lives? Well, think of it in terms of a world-class athlete. I mean, the athlete has been given physical and mental acuity and ability by God. But any athlete who's reached the height of success, I'm sure will tell you that although much of their success comes from God-given natural ability, they still needed to practice and train and that practice and training added to or supplemented their natural abilities, making them better, more successful athletes. Now, comparing the Christian life to that of an athlete is really not a stretch here. I mean, the New Testament is filled with references to the Christian life like running a race. 
Hebrews 12.1 tells us to run with endurance the race set before us. And 1 Corinthians 9.24-27 tells us to run in such a way to win the prize. And everyone who competes exercises self-control. Paul goes on to say that he doesn't run like one who runs aimlessly or box like one beating the air. Instead, he disciplines his body and brings it under strict control. So just like a successful athlete, a successful Christian must also train. Because just as verse 8 tells us, if we possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep us from being useless or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. I certainly don't want my life to be useless or unfruitful. Do you? So how should we train? Well, by adding or growing in goodness, knowledge, self-control, endurance, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. So to our faith, we must add goodness, which is moral excellency or virtue, and to goodness, knowledge, The word means full knowledge or knowledge that is growing. One commentary says it refers to the ability to handle life successfully. And it doesn't come automatically. It comes from obedience to the will of God. Next in Peter's list of Christian virtues is self-control. Because the false teachers in Peter's day were teaching that knowledge superseded all else. And so it made self-control unnecessary. But Peter's stating plainly that true, godly knowledge leads to self-control. And as scoffers and false teachers were prevalent in the first century, they are present in the 21st century. So adding the quality of endurance is essential. Just as we must withstand inner pressures by cultivating self-control, we must also cultivate endurance to withstand outward pressures from the world around us. As one commentator puts it, we should let difficulties work for us, not against us, by allowing God to work in them to produce endurance. Now, godliness refers to being godly-minded, that we're not taken in or taken over by the difficulties or inconsistencies of life, but instead recognize that God has a plan and purpose for all of it and that he is with us through it. Finally, Peter mentions brotherly affection and love. We should show sincere regard and kindness toward our brothers and sisters in Christ. We should be sincere in how we show kindness to them. And we should show complete, whole, agape love for them. Love for everyone. I believe all these characteristics can be summed up well in what Jesus said in Mark 12, 30 and 31. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Because as verse 8 says, if we possess these in increasing measure, they will keep us from being useless or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not only will developing these qualities serve as a witness to others, but they will help us by crowding out the corruption and evil desires from verse 4. We must continue to grow in these qualities, it says, in increasing measure, it says specifically. The implication being that we can never have too much. We can never have too much goodness or endurance or love. We'll never get to the place in the Christian life where we can sit back and say, I have arrived. 
I have reached the pinnacle of the Christian life. There is no more to be gained. As long as we have breath in our bodies, there is more to learn, and there is more spiritual growth to attain. Growing in these qualities shows our love for God. It deepens our relationship with Him, and it protects us from stumbling and living lives of uselessness. And in verse 9, it closes by saying, The person who lacks these things is blind and short-sighted and has forgotten the cleansing from his past sins. So the person who isn't seeking to grow in these ways is short-sighted and blind. The implication from the Greek is one who closes their eyes, indicating willful action. They choose not to grow in godliness, goodness, and love. They refuse to see or admit that these, that there are benefits that come with following God. They've also forgotten the price that Jesus paid for their sins. They've forgotten what Jesus has done for them. And when we forget what Jesus has done for us, when we allow life to crowd out Jesus, no wonder we become hopeless and stressed and fearful. May we never become blind to the truths of God's word. Now, as we close, let's make our challenge for this week a commitment to grow in godliness through prayer and Bible study and watch how useful and fruitful our lives can become. Thank you so much for joining me today. God bless you.